Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Oh my goodness, we've all recovered from last week's uh, discussion around three billboards. But have we did we? hear from Diane. We have. Including well, me? I'm not sure I've recovered. <laughs> well, here's what's funny. So we like when we agree on stuff and we say, oh, you can't miss this movie and everybody should go. And then we don't really hear back from people. But then when we have this sort of dissonant discussion like we had last week, now all of a sudden I start getting these emails. Okay, because of the way you guys talked about it and how, you know, how um, O'Toole was so against it and you were so for it, I went. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Who knew our disagreements are helping to fuel box office? Well, wait, but then I'm like, does that mean... Only when there's dissonance around a film are you interested in seeing it? What about the goodness of wonder? What happened to wonder? Did no one go to wonder is my question. But anyway, so Diane, who works with us a lot and who brought us to River Run Film Festival, she felt the same way I did, O'Toole. She said to tell you that she felt it was about redemption and she thought it was so beautifully laid out and she knows that you couldn't stay through it and she totally gets that. But that by missing that last hour, um, you you know you totally missed the the availability to to pull that together. And she she th- said redemption, redemption, redemption. She thought it was genius. So la 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 la. Now, didn't you tell me that Diane sent you an email before she went to see it, just on her own before our podcast, that she saw the trailer and she was a little worried about the language? Yeah, and she said it didn't bother her really? at all because it didn't bother me in yeah. the trailer, but. In such a big dose, I well, it's take so it. funny because you also mentioned that in the trailer they took some of the language out, but she, you know, but well, in certain I, teasers, the language did not disturb. There's language yeah, that can't the language use. did not disturb her. Interesting. Yeah, the language did not disturb her. So, but she did say she thinks it's one of the best films of the year for by by far and away. Did anybody email you and tell you that you were fabulous and I was an idiot? <laughs> no. And if they had, okay, I'm well, not sure I, I would got, share I just it. Read, I mean, I just talked about Diane's, but I got other emails from friends, too, who said they were glad they had gone. So I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I think you need to regroup here, my friend. I'm glad that it's connecting with the audience <laughs> that it should be connecting with. Okay, and then it is the 20th anniversary of Titanic. Really? Which is why they've re-released it in many um, theaters across the country. So it's being re-released, and... Here's the clincher. So um, DiCaprio, the only person who wanted DiCaprio to play the part was the director, whose name is... James Cameron. Exactly. And the entire studio was behind one other person. Can you well, guess what it is? And I'm I can just give you shocked a, a... that he was alone in that because Leonardo DiCaprio had already been in the Romeo and Juliet remake. With Claire Danes. I'm just telling you, nope, they all wanted a person. I'm, and I'm going to... I'm going to give you a little hint, like you always do for me. So I have to think back 20 years. Think Magic Mike. Matthew McConaughey? I started thinking, but Channing Tatum (laughs) wasn't around 20 years ago. Really? McConaughey. Everybody thought it should be McConaughey. And I sort of see it. Cocky, you know, upbeat. You know, I mean, nobody's more upbeat than Matthew McConaughey. I can see it. I can see it. I don't know that I see him in a period piece. Well, I can't speak to that, but I can tell you, I, I did not think DiCaprio was well cast in that. So I, I don't know. I sort of It wasn't it. my favorite movie. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, Romeo um, and Juliet on a boat. Don't you think you're being a little melodramatic? Okay, and then what an interesting discussion I heard at Goldman Sachs. You know, they do this sort of 
like mini me TED talks, but under their umbrella. And um, Ed Norton was interviewed because who knew Ed Norton is a major business guy. Did you know that? Well, he's got connections where you would least expect them. I mean, he and Paul Giamatti were roommates at Yale. When a film is made, the assets are the film itself and where it can be placed. So, you know, when it's placed outside of the movie theaters. And he said, so the same thing that's happened to music is now happening to film. And that it didn't need to happen. If they had continued to own those assets and give the digital experience, the streaming experience, instead of letting Netflix come in as a third party, if they had done it themselves, the movie houses, then Bill, you know, Netflix, which is what, it's like, what's a $65 billion company? Netflix would be part of Hollywood. So I, he basically considered Netflix basically, part yeah. of Hollywood. Well, but it isn't. It was a third party that came in and they just started making film recently and that's not what they were, you know, so... It's the television of our day. Yeah. So I want to play just part of this interview um, at Goldman Sachs. I want to play it here. I think it's fascinating. If you look at the way that the content media industry has been disrupted by technology, the you know, you, you could say that the music industry could be forgiven, although they got a sniff of Napster and instead of trying to absorb it and own it, they try to kill it, right? But you could, you could say distribution of music got taken over by a computer hardware company. No one saw that coming. But the movie business had a decade to watch that slow motion train wreck and did nothing. Nothing about it. Yeah. And, 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 and the entirety, the truth of the movie business at the time was most of the profit margin was in the ancillary distribution of DVDs, yeah. okay? Yeah. And you would think, if that was the case, you would go to bed every night and wake up every morning thing, thinking, what threatens that? And you see this coming, and they did nothing. Netflix, Netflix as a streaming service would not have existed were these companies, you know, and you can say whatever you want about how they're clawing it back. The bottom line is a $70 billion market cap company got created off the ancillary product that these studios should have been defending for themselves. And that happened in our adult lives, right? So... So um, that, that is a seismic shift, and it affected, you know, it, it affected everything. It rolled down through talent deals. It rolled into what types of movies are getting made. It changes the risk profile on things because half the profit center is now gone atomized. And I think what's interesting from an artistic point of view, um, I actually think the churn is good. So if you're, if you're nimble, if, if as a as a filmmaker, let's just say, but as any kind of a creator, if you're Chance the Rapper, if you're whatever, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the whole matrix of the way you can do your work and move it into the world is changing. And if you aren't precious, if you don't get hung up on, well, I need to see my film at the Arclight Cinema, then then all kinds of opportunities, of opportunities. are opening up. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's just very exciting. We'll put a link up. So if you want to go watch the entire um, interview with Ed, you can do so. So he's not talking about his films, but he's talking about the film industry in a way that was very interesting. And now, do you know what happened on December 1st? Um, November ended? <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. Woody Allen turned 82. And on his birthday, they released his latest film, Wonder Wheel. Coney Island, 1950s. The beach, the boardwalk. I work here on base seven. Now, say what you will about Woody Allen, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about Woody Allen Hollister, but did I don't actually. He has released a new movie every year since 1982. 
I find this amazing. That is one productive filmmaker, considering that he writes his movies as well. Um, yeah, well, good for him. But you know. also, speaking of innovation, this one is also being released by Amazon Studios, that distributed Cafe Society, and also Woody Allen's foray into television, Crisis and Six Scenes, hmm. both of which we reviewed. So he's somebody who's actually moving with the times. There you go. Speaking of technology, I was wondering if you saw this hilarious series of tweets. It all started with a tweet from The Hollywood Reporter about Aaron Sorkin. They interviewed him. They quoted Aaron Sorkin as having said if he were to reboot the West Wing, he would imagine Sterling K. Brown as the president. And Sterling K. Brown immediately tweeted back, if you are serious, sir, I would be honored. So Ken Olin... Some of us remember him as Michael on 30-something, but he, of course, is one of the producers of This Is Us. And he said, "Um, no, you belong on at NBC This Is Us, and I know about 20 million people who won't let you go. So Sterling K. Brown said, I was talking about later. So then the tweets that followed, some of them were so funny. Emma Dibden weighed in, and she said, solution. Randall becomes president. Show's title becomes This Is the U.S. And then Aaron Sorkin asked Joshua Molina to tweet on his behalf, because Aaron Sorkin doesn't tweet. He asked him to include a smiley face. And Joshua Molina, he said, note, I added the smiley face. I've always wanted to rewrite Sorkin with emojis. (laughs) Well, you know, in this same interview, get this. Okay, so they asked him if, if it was true that Lily Tomlin emailed him and asked him to be on the show, and that's how she got on the show. And he said that was absolutely true. That Lily Tomlin emailed him and said, I want to be on the show. And so he put her in. Okay, but then he said, but that's not the interesting one. The interesting one, he said, was that Mary Louise Parker, who plays Amy Gardner, who is the um, girlfriend of um, Bradley Whitford's Josh Lyman, right? And a brilliant PR person in her own right. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's what she did. You know, all the actors out there. She called Aaron Sorkin's phone number and left the following message on his phone. I think Josh Lyman needs to get laid, and I'm just the girl to do it. This is Mary Louise Parker, and she hung up. And that worked. And he hired her to be the girlfriend. Well, not the audition route that I would totally endorse, but... Okay, but I think it's great because what she did was she saw that, here, Josh, you know, you're in season three. He's never, he doesn't have a girlfriend. He's very single, you know, got not committed to anyone. And she said, I think he needs to get laid and I'm just the girl to do it. And he hired her. And by the way, the juxtaposition of Mary Lou Parker and um, Bradley Whitford, uh, you know, in the West Wing is one of the great combinations that Sorkin wrote. It really is. And yet I always so. felt sorry for Donna. And yet Janelle Why? Maloney and Mary Louise Parker are friends in real life because she just had a thing for Josh Lyman the whole series. Well, it didn't, she'd never acknowledged it until the final season and they ended up together in the end anyway. So there you go. Oh. Um, okay. But anyway, I loved it. I loved the idea that, that Aaron Sorkin is open to that type of thing. So basically what it means, if you want to be in an Aaron Sorkin, you know, film, just start emailing him. No question about it. Um, so there you go. It probably helps if you're already a famous actor. I know, right? <laughs> well, yeah, both of them were. But still, nonetheless, I'm just saying that I think we can sort of look at that and move on, right? And Sterling K. Brown didn't even have to email him. He just had to respond hmm. to a tweet from Vanity Fair. <laughs> but now, I have the feeling I know what you might be binge-watching tomorrow on Netflix. Yes, you're right. Yeah, season two of The Crown. Yep. That is one lavish production. The rumors 
still haven't gone away. I've learned more about humiliation in the past few weeks than I hoped I would in a lifetime. You married a wild spirit. Trying to tame them is no use. Uh, yes, season two of The Crown. Cannot wait for it to happen. Absolutely. Do you think Meghan Markle and Prince Harry will be tuned in? I do not think they will. I think they're very busy making whatever plans they have. But anyway, yes, I hope any, anybody who's interested, I hope you enjoy it. And on December 17th, here in the U.S., at long last, PBS is finally going to be showing the Christmas special of Last Tango in Halifax that aired in the U.K. last Christmas. It's two episodes. So for those who need a fix, which may or may not be the final fix of The Last Tango in Halifax, December 17th on PBS.org. Sounds like a plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's lead into some of our stuff here now, okay? Yes, now also on Netflix, I heard you watched Mudbound. You heard that as in they made an announcement? Yes, they did in my own oh. little head. And I figured you're on a Carrie Mulligan kick since yeah. you cited her last week when you rewatched Pride and Prejudice. Well, here's the thing. Carrie Mulligan is the reason to see Mudbound if there is one. There's no question. Oh. So, and because I watched Pride and Prejudice, and then I went to Carrie Mulligan's role in this. Okay, it's a movie that is shot as if it were in black and white. And it's one of those movies of the 50s that we've seen a lot of lately, you know. Um, And it's very, very sad. And it's very, very Steinbeck. Violence is part and parcel of country life. I learned how to stitch up a bleeding wound. Load and fire a shotgun. My hands did these things, but I was never easy in my mind. Way down in the water. It's about a white man and his wife and children, and they move out of the city to try to be farmers, and uh, people of color are there, and it's a terrible situation, and this, um, this black man comes back from World War II having been really a hero there, and, you know, the racism is just more than he can take. It's brutal, 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 brutal. But she is mesmerizing. I only pray for him. Over there, I was a liberator. People lined up in the streets waiting for us. Sometimes I actually miss it. Yeah, me too. I'm coming back from the fire. I went back and watched some of her scenes without any sound. And I was just stunned by her work, you know. But racism in Southern America... Sexism in Southern America. I'm going to say family. racism anywhere in America. Well, I think it's, you know, I don't think the racism in Northern America is the same as it is in Southern America. And, and shame and humiliation and how it affects people's behavior is all part of this film. And it it's not dissimilar from what we talked about last week, you know, that, um, that it's just very, very, very stunning and very upsetting and... Um, And Carrie Mulligan carries whatever film she wants to be in every single time she shows up on the screen. And she is. Turn the sound off and watch a couple of her scenes without sound, and it's worth the go-around. But it's not a happy film, and it just leaves you feeling laden with the the difficulty of this country's history around black-white behavior. They worked until they sweated. Everything okay? They sweated until they bled. They bled. So that's my take on Mudbound. So you had no desire to watch it. I assume now that I've described it, you, you won't either. 
<laughs> you won't be having me race over there to click on it. But, you know, when I read about the description, it reminded me with a very different tone, mind you, but the setup reminded me of Homefront, a TV show that aired in the 90s that I loved, uh-huh. where the men are coming back from war and how there is just a complete, um, you know, the war has thrown so many things into a new configuration. So women have been populating the factories and working at home and men who were white or black and were war heroes come back and same thing. They face a different socioeconomic order. It's, it's a, it was a, it was a tremendously difficult time. It'll be interesting to see if any films are made about women having to give up their position that they got during, during the war, they became sort of, you know, they had real jobs, which they had to give up the minute the men came back after the war. There have, there's been some film on it, but not a lot. It'll be interesting to see if in the coming years they do more. Well, see, they touched on that in Homefront in the 90s, and that was over 20 years ago. So, you know, it's sad. But how was Mary J. Blige, who I heard played Florence Jackson in Mudbound? I can't look back. They say it's bad luck to watch somebody leave. She's okay, you know. I mean, they all sort of blended to the background when Carrie's around. Mudbound, I didn't even, I knew your voice, but you don't look like you at all. Right, well, that was the goal, to completely disappear. Of course, I fought because, you know, it was a lot to become Florence. You know, after you're coming off of a Bad Boy reunion tour and you Mary J. Blige, you got your wigs, you got your weaves, you got your boots, you just <laughs> Mary J. Blige. And D. Reese says, no makeup. No wigs, no weaves, no lashes. I was like, but wait, isn't this, doesn't this character have lashes? Wasn't she born with lashes? Like, why can't I have a strip of lashes? Yes, everybody was very good in the role, but they didn't have the same role she did. They didn't have the depth of character. They didn't have the pain. You know, nobody, you know, had quite the the breadth of what she was asked to do on the screen. So they sort of fell to the background, if you will. But no, everybody's very good. It's really well written. It's very good. And it's funny because it was surprising to me that it wasn't pushed out on the big screen rather than um, launched in Netflix. But there you had it. So you won't be going. But if anybody else goes, I'd love to hear what you have to have to say about it. I was in my Netflix app, but I was binge watching the new series Dark. The first by Icht ein Berliner. (laughs) Well, it's the first German original series for Netflix, and I think it's a harbinger of a very exciting time to come because I think it's going to make more international programming available to us a lot quicker. Gestern, heute Morgen folgen sich aufeinander. Sie sind in einem ewigen Kreis miteinander verbunden. It's a genre. I don't know how you would feel about it, Hollister. It's kind of maybe got your name all over it because it is called Dark, and it starts with a suicide. Well, and, and what does that mean? Well, you often say that The Silence of the Lambs is your favorite movie of all time. I don't think it's dark, though. You, you don't? I mean, you think Silence of the Lambs? No, I don't think Silence of the Lambs is dark. Really? Chasing a serial killer you wouldn't really put in the dark category? No, I think it's exciting and scary, but it's not dark. Okay, well, I think you should give... Dark is without hope. And, you know, they knew they were going to catch him in the end. But anyway, go ahead. Well, this is a supernatural time travel psycho thriller. And I know you haven't been an X-Files fan. So it's somewhere between, like, the X-Files and a Scandinavian murder series. It's very 
atmospheric. There's an overarching... So our, our listener, Lalu, should take note. Is that it for sure, and right? many other listeners. Okay. I know a while ago, we reviewed the Kettering incident, which was filmed on location in Tasmania. Do you remember it starred Elizabeth Debicki from The Night Manager? It was kind of a gothic supernatural series where what happened before might be happening again. It reminded me of the Kettering incident, but I think here it was executed very, very well. It's creepy, but it's intriguing. So it's got all those elements you would expect in that genre where kids go missing in the woods. There's a nuclear yeah, reactor. It's being compared. Yeah, it's being compared to Stranger Things mostly because Stranger Things is the American um, very successful series that came out. I think it's in it's in uh, series. I think it's in their third season. Uh, and it's about young kids who go missing. So, and they say it's very, very similar in its presentation. So, well, you could compare um, it to Twin Peaks. You could compare it to Broadchurch. Uh, you know, it rains dead birds. There are dead sheep. Power outages. Flickering uh, lights bleeding yeah. from the ears. Flashlights faltering. You know, just picture Blair Witch Project. But it's got a very bendy sense of time. So I don't want to give too much away, but. You know, at least the first eight episodes bounce back and forth between 1986, which was a very pivotal year in Germany, because Chernobyl, that nuclear disaster, had already taken place in the Soviet Union, and the rain from that incident fell on Germany. Nina was still big on the radio, so it bounces between 1986 and 2019. You could call it horological because it has a lot to do with time and 33-year cycles and the Big Bang and the Big Crunch and Nietzsche's eternal recurrence. You know, I don't know, Hollister, how into time travel you are, but it's this premise that a year is not exactly 365 days long. So it gets out of sync, and every 33 years, <laughs> the universe returns to the same position, the planets and the stars, and you have this lunar-solar cycle. So one thing that confused me a little bit, especially at the beginning, you know, again, it's named Dark, and the lighting is pretty dark. I wasn't always clear in the first couple episodes if we were in 1986 or 2019. The hair and the fashion didn't look that different. At one point in 2019, I swear one of the teenagers was wearing a velour sweatshirt. So thank goodness for Tears for Fears and 80s music, and thank goodness for cell phones, because that helped me decode a little bit. You know, there's an older man who you don't know. Is he babbling or is he being prophetic? The music is perfectly foreboding. But for fans of Outlander, I have to say that Jamie adapted to the facts of time travel a lot faster than some of the characters in the series. So, so, so I have to ask, because I sometimes don't know, are you recommending it? Absolutely. Yes, I find huh. it very okay, intriguing. Okay, so you'll go, yeah, but this is like, the, what, is, what is the what is the redeeming value of this, this series? For me, I always put my thumb on the scale of plot, editing, characterization, acting, the pacing. Every element of this I thought was very well done. It's creepy, but it's not violent. And it's not okay, but, one but note. But some of what you attack in some of these other films, like the Attack series, is a it, strong know, word, but okay. Uh, last week, I think you attacked that film. I think, every, I mean, I think that, but I felt like the movie attacked me. 
That was my point. Okay. okay, no, no, I'm not. I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that anybody who listened to last week knows that that you definitely, you know, were very strongly saying there's zero redeeming value and that it hurt your soul. I mean, but here's the series that's like full of dark cheating spouses, ugly secrets, grotesque killings, and dead birds falling from the sky in a hail of limp, twisted bodies. And I'm like, I'm reading this thinking to myself. Okay, that's okay. I can see how you would think that, but this is much more nuanced. So you're asking questions about, can you change the past? Can you redeem the future? Can you go back and undo a mistake? What would it be like to meet a younger version of yourself? What message would you deliver? So it's beautifully done with split frames where you see the younger versions and the older versions of the actors. In three billboards, you know, I said Martin McDonough is known for his in-your-face theater. Mm -hmm. And for me, this is much more nuanced, where you're trying to figure out, is there one evildoer? Is there an evildoer? Is this a battle between good and evil? Who's winning? You know, they talk about the battle between light and shadows. Uh And it also says a lot about where our society has gone over the past 33 years. So, for example... I mean, you defended defended that approach very well. I mean, it's a fair question, though, to say, you know, with with the kinds of uh, visual things on the screen... You know, one could say, why would that that be appealing to you? Isn't there a better way to say it? You, you know, as you said last week, isn't there a better way to tell the story? The characters have different voices. The characters, you can not only distinguish them from one another, which I couldn't do in Three Billboards, but you can distinguish their earlier versions from their later versions. So, you know, there are, are pieces where, for example, with the time travel element, these characters in 1986, you don't have to go further back than that, they look at the guy's sweatshirt. And they say, what is this? And you look at the label and it says made in China. And you're thinking, okay, that's already a sign that this man has come from the future. You know, Mm -hmm. so to me, that's already very interesting that it keeps you on your toes as opposed to keeping me in a defensive crouch thinking, okay, here comes one more sledgehammer blow. Okay. And again, you can choose the tone with which you execute it. So obviously you could compare it to Back to the Future, where he sees his parents meet. That happens in this as well. But I thought it was a really masterful use of the long form. So I was intrigued over 10 episodes, which I think is a feat of storytelling. And I think it's beautifully set up if they want a season two. Because to me, one of the things that kept me going in this genre, it's the toughest thing I think is how is it going to end without feeling gimmicky, without feeling cheated. And yet you've set a pretty high bar in terms of plot when you're going back and forth between different decades to give someone a conclusion that might seem satisfying. Okay. Okay, no, you know, well well said, well said. So so did you watch all 10? I did. And you know, so but you know me, I'm always looking for something to, to brush up on my German. And there's not that much German programming out there that's available to us in the U.S. So for me, this was a very welcome innovation on Netflix's part that they're bringing in international storytellers. Gotcha. Yeah, sounds great. Um, okay, I don't think I'm going to watch it, Okay. Of course. Are you okay with that? Hollister, I would never force feed you anything. Uh, You know, but I force fed you Silence of the Lambs, and I'm still glad that I did. So there you go. And yet I should have seen it when it came out. That's something that when it goes through the time machine, I think it was a little diluted. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Okay, good. 
So in this vein, I thought for our list of six this week, we could do our six favorite German movies, either movies that are in German, movies about Germany. Okay, well, you know which one I'm going to start with. The Nuremberg Trials that was done by... Is that, is that Judgment at Nuremberg? Well, no, because that one is way too smart for me, but oh. I'm going with the Alec Baldwin one. Okay, I don't think I ever saw it. Um, you're sure you did. Well, I, I don't know if you... Did you not see it... Um, but we talked I, about it. I definitely saw Spencer Tracy in Judgment at Nuremberg, but I'm not sure I ever saw the Alec Baldwin one. <laughs> okay, it's called Nuremberg, and it's Alec Baldwin and Brian Cox and Christopher Plummer, and it's really good. I really liked it. Yep, 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 Nuremberg. It is impossible in summation to do more than outline with bold strokes the vitals of this trial's mad and melancholy record for no time has ever witnessed slaughter on such a grand scale and what year did it come out hollister 2000 it came out um in the year 2000 and alec baldwin is great he plays the lead prosecutor at the nuremberg trials and he's really really good really good loved it loved it loved it okay what do you have what are you going to start with okay i am going to start with a movie i've mentioned many times on this podcast the lives of others i think it is such a wonderful portrayal of the interplay of art and politics zu viele Erinnerungen, was? Mir ging es genauso, ich musste auch raus. Aber was höre ich von Ihnen? Nichts mehr geschrieben seit der Wende. Das finde ich nicht gut. And I'm still just amazed by the statistics that have come out of Germany since the wall came down about how up to two-thirds of the population in East Germany was spying and reporting on each other. So to me, it is an interesting thing about oppression without firing uh -huh. a bullet. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. So good choice. I haven't seen that, but that one I might go look at, actually. I'm writing it down right now so I can go check it out. Um, I'm going to go with The Pianist, which came out in 2002. Oh. Do you like that? Do you like that choice? Why are no, you and the Oscars liked yeah. that too with Adrian Brody. Well, they did, and he was very good in it. So I'm picking the pianist. This is the greatest pianist in Poland, maybe the whole world. No one plays Chopin like you. I hope that's a compliment. It could have taken place really anywhere, but I liked it, so I picked it. Okay, well, I'm going to go with a German comedy. Maybe a tragic comedy would be a better description. Mostly Martha. It's about a German chef and an Italian chef who meet and fall in love in the same kitchen. And I loved this movie because of how it dealt with the contrast of the two cultures. And I once had a German professor in college who's from Germany, and he said, style is that which goes missing in the translation. And I think that's absolutely true here because Hollywood remade this movie virtually scene for scene. I said, I want my steak rare. It was called No Reservations, starring Catherine Zeta-Jones and Aaron Eckhart. And I thought all the style and humor and nuanced subtleties of this movie just got lost in the translation. Cool, cool, cool. Which also would be a good name for a movie. Um, there you go. Okay, my last choice is Valkyrie, oh. which, yeah, was the dr dramatization of the... There was a um, an assassination attempt on Hitler, like, July 20th, a long, long time ago. But it was a coup that didn't work. And so this is sort of a remake, expanded version, half true, half not true, starring... Tom Cruise. I'm a soldier. 
but in serving my country, I have betrayed my conscience. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not a big Cruz fan. I just feel like he's so pompous even on the screen. And I know he's not, and I know that's not fair of me. But anyway, um, but I, you know, I, I have, I don't think I've ever picked a Tom Cruise film for anything we've ever done. So I'm going with Tom Cruise. Okay. For my last one, I'm going to go with Goodbye Lennon, which I think has such a great premise. My name is Alexander Kerner. Ich bin Bürger der Deutschen Demokratischen Republik. There is a mother in the movie who's been in a coma, and she suddenly awakens from the coma in 1990. So she has no idea that the wall has fallen, and her entire country of East Germany no longer exists. So the doctors tell her son, you have to be very careful not to give her any undue shock. So he has to run around and pretend as though East Germany still exists. And to me, it was a beautiful way to portray all the changes that took place so quickly when the wall did come down, which was such a cataclysmic moment in their history. Good one. Yeah, I, yeah, I also like that it's not World War II-ish, you know, mm-hmm. Diff- a different time in a different place, let's put it that way. So well done, well done, well done. So that's our list of three and our separation of church and state that we went to different films this week. So That's next right. week, though, we're going to watch things together. Let's make that promise, okay? Okay. I'm all in. All right. Okay. Talk to you all next week. Bye.